Welcome to the Autoimmune Wellness Podcast, a complimentary resource for those on the road to recovery. I'm Mickey Trescott, a nutritional therapy practitioner living well with autoimmune disease in Oregon. I've got both Hashimoto's and celiac disease. And I'm Angie Alt, a certified health coach and nutritional therapy consultant also living well with autoimmune disease in Maryland. I have endometriosis, lichen sclerosis, and celiac disease. After recovering our health by combining the best of conventional medicine with effective and natural dietary and lifestyle interventions, Mickey and I started blogging at autoimmune-paleo.com, where our collective mission is seeking wellness and building community. This podcast is sponsored by the Autoimmune Wellness Handbook, our co-authored guide to living well with chronic illness. We saw the need for a comprehensive resource that goes beyond nutrition to connect savvy patients just like you to the resources they need to achieve vibrant health. Through the use of self-assessments, checklists, handy guides, and templates, you get to experience the joy of discovery, finding out which areas to prioritize on your healing journey. Pick up a copy wherever books are sold. A quick disclaimer, the content in this podcast is intended as general information only and is not to be substituted for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. On to the podcast. Hey everyone, welcome back to the Autoimmune Wellness Podcast Season 2. This is Mickey with you guys today and I'm interviewing a very special friend of mine. Uh, We go way back in the autoimmune wellness journey. Uh, I first became aware of her almost, gosh, six years ago um, through Sarah Ballantyne's blog and Facebook. She was a very early member of the AIP community. Her name is Jolaine, and uh, she has ankylosing spondylitis. So uh, we've heard from you guys that you find it really helpful to hear from these people who have taken on this healing journey in real life. I couldn't think of a better example than someone like Jolaine. So she's been so kind to agree to an interview with me to share with you guys um, a little bit about her story. So thank you so much, Jolaine, for joining us uh, from your home country of Canada. Um, Are you ready to get started? Thank you, Mickey. I am. (laughs) Awesome. Um, so, you know, first things first, um, you know, we know that you have ankylosing spondylitis, um, but really what was the first symptom, the first thing that you noticed about, you know, something was wrong? Um, I think I've, I first noticed I was about 21 years old and I was just at work and I had all of a sudden a really sharp shooting pain up my leg into my, you know, pelvis area and my sacrum joint, which is where the disease kind of starts. And that sort of just continued off and on. And I just thought it was something wrong with my back. And I used to walk to work. And I remember one day I couldn't walk the last block. I had to take a bus for one block. And that was like, okay, something's something's really wrong. Wow. Yeah. That's, that's pretty debilitating when you can't walk a block. Um, in that moment, you know, how did you feel like having to like wait for the bus? Were you like, uh, I need to call my doctor or, you know, what was going through your mind? You know, I honestly just thought maybe I'm out of shape. (laughs) I don't know. I, I really didn't think that it was something that serious. Mm-hmm. You know, I thought maybe I needed a trip to the chiropractor or maybe I should exercise some more. Just probably the normal thoughts that 
would go through anyone's head. It never occurred to me it was a disease of any kind. Yeah, especially when you're young and, you know, you really haven't had anything happen um, to you like that. I think our tendency is definitely to just be like, oh, well, if I can just get through this, it'll go away or something. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So from that first noticing those sharp pains, how long did it take um, until you actually got your diagnosis and what was that process like? It took 22 years. Oh and gosh. that was that, that that's a long time that's probably one of yeah. the longer time frames i've ever heard yeah so i mean that's a good chunk of my life and it was it was horrible it was a horrible 22 years and oddly enough the first year after my diagnosis was even worse mm-hmm. um so it was it was really difficult i mean like a lot of people with autoimmune, um, your doctors, your family, your circle of friends, your coworkers, they just think you're a hypochondriac because, I mean, the list is so long. And even to hear myself say to somebody, well, this hurts and this happens and this happens, you, to myself, I sounded like, like a little excessive, you know, mm-hmm. like it, it didn't seem like it was a real thing. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. I mean, I went to... I couldn't even count the doctors and specialists and different diagnoses I was given in the meantime. In that 22 years, I had a lot of disability, probably years of my life in bed in horrible pain with no help whatsoever. Mm-hmm. And what were, you know, what, what were you told when you went in? Like, what did you get misdiagnosed? Was that part of the reason? Why do you think it took so long? You know, I think it's be, you know, it's a typical story. Like I, I had, um, skeletal pain. So you're sent to a rheumatologist. I had digestive issues. So I also saw a gastroenterologist then I had hormone issues. Um, so I was also seeing an endocrinologist and it seemed that every specialist I went to, I had their disease or their Mm -hmm. issue. Mm -hmm. So you're told you have IBS and, arthritis and you're too skinny. That's why you don't have your period and all these different diagnoses. But in my gut, I always knew these are connected. Mm -hmm. I'm one person. I'm one body. I need one doctor that will look at the whole picture, not just that it hurts here or this isn't working, you know? Mm -hmm. So what was the final doctor that made the connection? How did that come about? It actually wasn't a doctor that figured it out in the end. There was a few um, tests along the way that kind of led me towards the diagnosis, but it was the the final sort of conclusion or um, thing that sort of propelled me to find out what it was, was Facebook. Mm -hmm. So I, um, the the pain that I had shooting up my leg, that original one, um, that sort of kept coming back over the years. And I thought it was something with my foot. At the time, I wore high heels to work, and I thought it was something wrong with my foot and wearing high heels. So I was at a podiatrist, and he was asking me a bunch of questions to determine if I would heal well after a surgery. Because as it turns out, I'm missing a small little bone in my foot, and he thought, you know, if we do this surgery, then this is going to get better. So after a series of questions, he said to me, you know, I don't think by your answers that you'd be a good candidate for surgery. I don't think you would heal really well and it's not going to benefit you, but I'm curious to know um, what your rheumatoid markers are like. And if you happen to carry this particular gene, HLA B27. 
which meant nothing to me whatsoever. So I'm like, sure, whatever, let's do a blood test. So I came back positive. I have this gene and my rheumatoid markers were slightly elevated. And he said, you know, this isn't a big deal. You might want to check this again in five or 10 years and see if it's changed any. And at the time I was, I was very sick and I look back and I think it's not like my personality to go straight home and start Googling that and Mm -hmm. figure out like, what is this gene and what does that mean? But I think because I was just so overwhelmed with how I felt, I just kind of filed that in my head and never, never did anything with it. Mm -hmm. So then one day on Facebook, a friend of mine just wrote the strangest Facebook status and it said, I am HLA B27 negative which probably to most people meant nothing. So as soon as I read that, I was like, hey, that's, that's that gene that I had. So um, I private messaged her and I just said, I'm curious, like, why, why did you write that? And she said, well, three of my sisters have AS. So I wrote back and I said, I don't know what that is. What is AS? So she answered ankylosing spondylitis. So I Googled it and I had the entire list of symptoms. And I just knew when I read that, that's, that's it. That's got to be it. So all of the healthcare professionals I had in my life at that time, chiropractor, physiotherapist, a rheumatologist, my GP, my naturopath, all of them said, no, you don't have that. You, you don't fit the description, but Mm -hmm. I still felt like, yeah, yeah, I do. Like, I know that I'm still flexible and I'm still mobile and I can do all these things, but I feel what it says there. So I asked my GP for a referral to a specialist and that took nine months to get in. Wow. So I went to that specialist finally in the nine months and I said, you know, I have this gene. These are my symptoms. I think I have AS, you know, what can we test me for this? So he did some really, really simple tests, bend this way, bend forward, do this, do that, you know, tell me how you feel. And then he also said, you know, I really don't think by looking at you and doing all of these, you know, just hands-on exams that you have it. I really don't. And then for the first time in 22 years, a doctor said, but I hear what you're saying. I see this blood test. It's just going to be a simple x-ray. Let's do it. And I felt like that was the first time someone actually heard what I said. Mm -hmm. And that was really pivotal. So he took the x-ray and it came back and he goes, yeah, sure, sure enough, you have it. And it looks like you've had it for about 20 years. And I said, yep, yep, that's about right. And um, that was it. Yeah. Wow. That is just incredible. Like, you know, incredible just because it's so common for us to really feel intuitively, you know, that there's something wrong and to be told, especially as a young woman, you know, I think we're a little bit, you know, we've experienced this personally. And, you know, I experienced my illness in my 20s. And, but, you know, when you go into the doctor's office and, you know, you're a normal weight and, you know, you're kind Mm -hmm. of like a cute young girl, they kind of go, oh, maybe you're depressed. Maybe it's in your head. And yeah. it's just, I cannot even imagine. I was told that for a year and I was going out of my mind. I can't imagine yeah. 22 years. So Yeah, um, so many people like here, you need antidepressants, you know, so, so many things like that. And I was always genetically on the low end of the weight scale. So automatically that was a thing too. Like, Oh, you just need to gain weight. You're mm-hmm, deficient mm-hmm, in, you know, mm-hmm. nutrients. You're not eating enough, things like that. But, you know, even, 
he said, you know, you are not typical at all of any patient that I have. And I think that's probably because all of those 22 years, um, I still tried to do what I thought was the best thing with food and exercise and sleep. Mm -hmm. So that probably really helped me. Mm -hmm. And I also knew that I had a really low bone density in my 20s. So I was trying to eat and live for that as well. Hmm. So that probably all cumulatively really helped me. But I, I told him in that appointment, whatever your textbook says about AS and my future, um, you can throw it away when it comes to me. I'm not typical in anything, and I don't intend to end up where your hmm. textbook says I will. Hmm. I love that. You were on fire. I mean, but you know, you figured it out and how empowering is that to, you know, uh, just that sequence of events, you know, finding out from a podiatrist Mm -hmm. that you have a genetic um, marker and then a friend posting on Facebook and then, you know, basically researching online, figuring out, okay, I probably have this disease, like all of the things that had to happen to make you get there. Um, Of course you told him that, you know, he couldn't count on you just being a textbook case. (laughs) You know, that's a pretty incredible story. Well, I mean, and you've go through so many different doctors and so much vulnerability and so much almost I don't, maybe abuse is a strong word, but at, at sometimes it feels like it the way that you're treated, uh-huh. um, that you get to the point where you understand a hundred percent. If I don't speak for myself, nobody will. Yeah. You have to be your own advocate. You yeah. have to say, this is what I want and this is what I know. Yeah. And you have a unique experience as the person who is feeling those symptoms and whose body is physically expressing itself in that way you know, um, you deeply come to that understanding that it's, it's all you, you know, all these people, they can give you information, they can try to help. But, um, I think a lot of the way that people, uh, view the medical profession and, and in turn the same way that they treat us, especially chronically ill Mm -hmm. patients, it just, um, yeah, abuse is not too strong of a word. You know, (laughs) it's almost like you have to heal from that, um, I don't, I don't know what your experience was like, but I knew that I, it took me a little while to, to gain my respect back for the medical mm-hmm. profession after, um, you know, I had a similar experience where I found out, um, about Hashimoto's. I read about it. I knew I had it and I had to go through six doctors who told me no, 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 no. Until I found yeah. the one that said, yes, actually I did the test. You have it. Um, I was pretty pissed at the whole conventional medical system and it probably took me a year or two to get back to the place where I was like, you know, there are good doctors out there. They go get into this because they want to help. And Mm -hmm. I just have to figure out how to find the right one and how to communicate and advocate for myself properly. Well, and I, I don't think that even, I don't think that ends. Like I'm still experiencing that at times where a doctor doesn't, you know, believe you. And that just happened to me over, um, at Thanksgiving last year. And I ended up writing a four page letter to the emergency doctor in my local hospital, just for the way they treated me for the misunderstanding and not in a hope of like getting out my own anger, but to give her perspective on the next time you come across somebody like me, this is what you need to know. Mm-hmm. You know, after we leave the hospital, this is what happens that you don't see and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. I think to my disadvantage as well, I've been told I don't express pain outwardly, very visible, sorry, mm-hmm. very visibly. Mm-hmm. And 
that come that was to my disadvantage because I'd sit there and I'd say, well, you know, I'm in a nine out of 10 pain right now, but I say it calmly and I'm not crying and I'm not, you know, I don't display it well. So that was to my disadvantage. But then on the flip side of that, if you go into a doctor's office displaying it and you're crying and you're emotional, then they say, well, you need antidepressants. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So there's really no win there. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this this is a problem that people with autoimmune disease and chronic illness know well. You know, we appear quite normal. And a lot of times we've gone through so many years of learning how to build up that resilience and kind of keep mm-hmm. it all in and keep it together when really inside we could be really suffering. It's really hard um, to communicate yeah. that. But yeah. Um, you know, how did your friends and family react to your diagnosis and finding out about this? Did they kind of, um, were they like, oh, wow, you know, there really was something or like, how did that go? You know, there was no really big, huge reaction. I think partly because it's not a disease people have heard of. Mm-hmm. So if I were to say to them, I have cancer or I have diabetes, something they've heard of, mm-hmm. then the response might have been a little bit different. But, you know, people, um, if they've never experienced illness, you know, I've even had people say, well, is there a medication that will cure it? Mm -hmm. And that just, well, well, no, medication isn't a cure ever for anything. Mm -hmm. Um, So, you know, there's a few people, you know, that are close to me, like my sisters and my parents and my husband. And, you know, I'm really sorry. And they Google it, they'd read about it, try to understand it. Um, so that was really nice. There's validation in that. Um, I naively thought a lot of the people that really mistreated me might say, oh, you know what? I'm sorry. Like I never treated you right. I didn't give you grace. I wasn't kind or, you know, whatever. And when that didn't happen, that was disappointing, but that was also a learning experience to me to like, you know, maybe if they're not even now, um, accepting that or accepting their own role and what have might have been really difficult for me. Maybe I need to like distance myself a little bit from that for my own health. And mm. so, yeah, you know, I, I think that's actually sadly very common, you know? Yeah. Um, and I, I hope if anyone's listening to this and, you know, you've had that similar experience, you know, you're not alone. Cause I think we yeah. kind of, we kind of get mistreated by a lot of people in our life. And then, you know, we have this mm-hmm. validating experience and sometimes it's only validating to us, <laughs> you know, other people yeah. don't go, Oh wow, that's what's going on. Okay. I am so sorry. Like, no, yeah. you know, um, I, I did actually have one apology. Like okay. I ended up writing sort of a, I wrote a letter to people on Facebook kind of saying, you know, this is what I've been through. And if you happen to know somebody in your life Mm. who has anything similar to this, like, you know, treat them this way, you know, say this, not that, and give them grace and believe their truth and that kind of thing. And, and if for some reason, this letter that I'm writing to you is offensive, like why? you know, the chances are the reason why you find it offensive is because you're guilty of that. And after I wrote that, I did get one apology from an extended family member. And that meant the world to me. Hmm. Like, honestly, all the, all of the pain, the physical pain that I've been through, I would say pales in comparison to the emotional pain Hmm. of people who are close to you, not accepting Mm -hmm. or not being kind. Mm -hmm. And it would simply just take 
I'm sorry. That's, that's really mm-hmm. all I think that's required. Mm-hmm. That did mean a lot to me. Wow. Yeah. You know, and I think, do you think there's something about connecting with other people? And, you know, I've especially had this experience with a lot of women in my life that I've found that Mm -hmm. have kind of experienced this, that, you know, you're able to have a friendship on a different level than I think people that haven't experienced pain. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, a hundred percent. I think there's something incredibly powerful about connecting with someone, whether that's in person or online, who actually really, really gets it when they really understand what it means when you say, I'm tired. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm so tired. Mm-hmm. And when they understand... It's not because you stayed up till two in the morning drinking yes. with your friends <laughs> and you had to go to yeah. work at seven. Like, that's not yeah. what we're talking about. <laughs> yeah. Like, the tired that it feels like every word and every motion is like, I'm underwater. And even like trying to listen to you talk to me right now, it's like we're underwater and I'm trying to process what you're saying. When you meet people who really get that, it's, it's, a, like it's a moment. It's a huge moment. Mm-hmm. And I have two sisters with autoimmune disease and um, my oldest sister has Crohn's and she's, she's been through so much and really understands that. And that's been, that's been really helpful, hopefully for both of us, but certainly for me. Hmm. Can you describe yeah. Jolene, um, you know, some of the, the physical experience of, you know, what you experienced, um, when you were diagnosed, like what was your, um, you know, basically what was your, your low point? How, how did that feel for you? the low point before I was diagnosed or how yeah, I just, actually. just in your illness, just, you know, when it was at its worst, you know, what were some of yeah. the symptoms that you had at its worst? Um, I was completely disabled and immobile and all I could move was, um, my arms really, even just lifting my head was uh, extreme pain. And that would last for, I think the longest was close close to six months, around five, six months. And I mean, a a person can only take so much. And I think because I didn't know what was wrong. So you're laying there alone Mm -hmm. um, with no um, medical help or, or validation of any kind in horrible pain with no even assistance more than Tylenol for that. And, and, and no sleep. Mm-hmm. And hardly really even even be able to eat because that means you got to get up to make something, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I definitely do remember um, being suicidal, specifically one particular night. I would say it was the strongest and it was only by the grace of God that I, I made it through that night. Mm-hmm. Um, and if it wasn't for, um, I just thought about how some other people I was close to uh, would cope with that, um, that I didn't. Yeah. Jolene, thank you, you know, for sharing that. Cause I think, um, you know, it's a very vulnerable thing to, um, admit, but I, I think that that is something that a lot of us that have, um, struggled with chronic pain in our deepest, darkest moments, definitely. Yeah wrestle with that. And, uh, I think, you know, some people listening, you know, if you're there, like, you know, try to reach out to some people in your life and, and get some support, um, because it's not uncommon, 
you know, um, yeah. that is how real some of that pain is. And especially when yeah. you're having the same experience of going into a doctor's office and, and having them tell you it's all in your head. I mean, how deflating and, uh, you know, demoralizing yeah. is that? So just, um, it's just a complete loss of hope. Yeah. Like an entire yeah. loss of hope. And I don't think anyone can continue living if you have zero hope at all. Yeah, I totally agree. Um, so, you know, to transition a little bit, um, you know, what was the first action step, you know, that you started to take towards managing this condition? I know you kind of figured out over that long diagnosis period, some things Mm -hmm. that, you know, you, you had kind of a healthier lifestyle, but once you got that diagnosis, were you offered any treatment or, you know, what was kind of the first thing that you did that, um, started to get you on the road to recovery? Well, Around the time that I was diagnosed was really close to around the time that I discovered the autoimmune protocol. So when my rheumatologist confirmed with my diagnosis, kind of like any other doctor, if you don't do what they say, you can't be their patient. Mm -hmm. So I was kind of walking this thin line where I've discovered the autoimmune protocol I know that the standard drugs are probably going to be harmful because those are prescription NSAIDs, which, as I learned, contribute to leaky gut. But if I don't follow what he says, then I don't really have a doctor on my side to, like, help me through this in any way through my future as well. And I really, really valued him. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to respect his, you know, his prescription for me, but I also wanted to do what I was alerting was best for me. So that first year, the reason I said was the worst is because I agreed to the drugs. So I said to him, okay, I'll try it. But I hadn't actually said out loud yet, I don't think they're good for me. I found this diet. You know, I hadn't said that out loud to him. So for the first year, I tried four different NSAIDs. And within 48 hours, maybe 24 hours of each one, I couldn't walk. And it would take me two, three months till I would recover from that. And then he'd say, okay, well, let's try this one. So we do it again. And so that, that process took a year till I went through, I think it was four different drugs. And the end of that, he said, okay, well, we're going to try biologics, which I, I wasn't willing to try. I had, by that time I had learned the, the, the side effects and the risks of those. Mm-hmm. So that's when I said to him, okay, I discovered this autoimmune protocol. I don't want to do the drugs anymore. You know, we both saw they didn't work. I would really love it if you would, you know, just follow me on this journey and see if it helps. And, you know, and he said, you know, most doctors would just say, you know, you can't be my patient anymore then. And I said, you know, I get that, but it's at no, no, like there's nothing required from you except, you know, we'll do a blood test once a year or whatever, see what's happening. So he compromised. He said, okay, you'll come once a year. We'll check your blood test. We'll do an MRI. If there's any progression infusion in your spine, then we're going to do it my way. And I said, okay. And, um, the very first thing I did when I discovered, um, Sarah's website is I got on my crutches and I went to my local, um, organic grocery store and I bought bones (laughs) and I had tears streaming down my face from the pain. I could hardly move, but I made bone broth. And I think for about two weeks, that's, that's all I could eat. And that was the very first thing I did. Hmm. I love it. I mean, (laughs) 
you know, I don't, I don't love the, the year that you spent in pain, but I think your account yeah. of how you gained the respect of a conventional doctor and, you know, it was unfortunate that it took both of you so long to kind of get to that conclusion. But I, I think the yeah. way that you approached it in that moment of kind of in between, you know, the, the treatment that was tried and the treatment that was being proposed and, mm-hmm. you know, you gave what he offered a fair shot and it obviously didn't work. And, um, yeah. I think that that is a really great example of kind of how to, work with what you learned about online and Mm -hmm. you know the the current medical situation that you were in which is kind of in that in between like okay I can go with the biologics but let's try this first but also you got your doctor on board so um I'm sure it was not easy but um you know good for you Jolene you know advocating for yourself and uh and and making that choice there um yeah what, um, you know, what happened? I'm curious. I don't know this part of your story. Um, you know, how, how did that go for you? Tell me a little bit about, you know, the beginning of AIP and kind of some of the first things that, um, made you realize that that was the right track. Well, you know, I think because I had had health trouble for so long and had seen other, you know, naturopaths and doctors along the way who had given me advice on what to eat and what not to eat, I had already eliminated partly from what they said and partly just what I felt in my body when I ate different foods. So I eliminated already like gluten and dairy and just kind of random things here and there. So the transition to AIP from where I was wasn't huge. Mm -hmm. There wasn't a lot more that I had to change. It was more of a focus of what I needed to add Mm -hmm. rather than subtract. Like that broth? Right, like bone broth, like... um, Uh, the organ meat thing, which is still a struggle, but I'm getting there and learning more about the importance of sleep and stress and how that impacts me. Mm -hmm. Um, So, you know, those sorts of things were were huge um, in making changes. And then like uh, natural anti-inflammatories, learning about turmeric, for instance, that was also something that I really noticed made a difference. Okay. Um. And how long, like, did you do the elimination diet formally or, um, you know, I know back in that time, there wasn't a lot of information about like, now we have a very specific protocol. You do it for a certain Mm -hmm. amount of time. You do reintroductions a certain way, but a lot of people don't realize that back then the autoimmune protocol, there were just some of these threads of ideas of, you know, what people could do. Um, how did you like, what kind of thing did you do? Like, how long did you follow it? Did you reintroduce foods, that kind of thing? Well, when I first started it, I didn't even understand that it was meant to be like sort of Mm semi-temporary and that you reintroduce. So I just had my list of, you know, yes and no food. And that's what I followed. And it was quite a while before I realized, oh, people are reintroducing. So I think now I'd, I'd say it's still very fluid. Like I know that I don't do well with grain and people with AS in general don't do well with starch. So that's kind of a consistent, I don't intend to try and reintroduce those. I can, I can tolerate a little bit of white rice, things like that. But I say it's fluid because if I end up in a flare and I've reintroduced, you know, eggs, for instance, and pepper, if I'm in a flare, then I pull back on those and then they're gone for a while again. Mm -hmm, And then mm -hmm. when I start to feel better, then they're, then I can reintroduce them. So it's always back and forth, you know, between how I'm feeling and what I know might be 
not so good at that moment in a flare. Mm -hmm. And how Um, long did it take before you were like, this is really working? This is like, this is what I need to do. Oh, once I started that bone broth, that was, Hmm. that was monumental. It was that fast. Oh yeah. Like I had been in bed for four months. So in that four months, I was on my iPhone Googling ankylosing spondylitis plus whatever, plus Mm. food, plus diet, plus whatever. And that's how I discovered it was on my iPhone. Mm. So um, when I started the bone broth, I would say within the first week, I was was moving again. Like I was up and walking. Wow. Yeah. That's incredible. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. And then, you know, further changes, like, did you go back into your doctor and have some blood work? What were the results there? Um, Well, after we made the compromise, I did have an MRI and blood work. Um, My MRI showed that I have no fusion in my spine, which is what the end result of this disease is, is your spine fuses together, amongst other things that can happen. So I have no fusion considering the amount of years that I had it and that I was undiagnosed and un- untreated specifically for it. He said that was quite a miracle. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the blood tests, uh, my most recent ones showed that they couldn't even measure any antibodies in my blood. Wow. So that's pretty significant. Yeah, I'd say. Um, yeah. <laughs> but again, that, that can change mm-hmm. from week to week. Like I just mm-hmm. went through a traumatic um, life event. We had a death in our family, as you know. Mm-hmm. And so I, you know, I, I'm in a little bit of a flare right now, considering what I went through. I'm pretty impressed that I'm still walking. I'd say it was a huge win to make it through this. Mm-hmm. Um, so again, that's always something that's changing. But those were the two tests that kind of really confirmed I'm on the right track. Yeah, I had no fusion. My inflammation markers were really low and manageable. And so to me, that's evidence enough yeah, I mean the yeah. antibodies are always a really good, uh, a really good sign because a lot of us, especially those of us who've had an autoimmune process, like I uh, suspect that I've had Hashimoto's for almost twenty years now, mm-hmm. um, based on kind of some of my early symptoms when I was a teenager. Um, and if you think, you know, your body's been making antibodies for that long, there's going to be some mm-hmm. damage that, you know, you're going to have to kind of deal with for the rest of your life. And, uh, yeah. and, and just getting those antibodies down either very low or zero, if that's, you know, in the cards for you, that means that mm-hmm. maybe you can maintain your current state of health for the rest of your life, which that is a win for people with autoimmune disease. You know, usually mm-hmm. we get sicker and sicker as we get older and then things get more yeah. complicated. So, um, just being able to kind of restore that and knowing that your immune system is functioning well, that's really good. Yeah. Um, talk to me about some of your like lifestyle changes. Cause you know, you talked a little bit about kind of dialing in that stuff. It sounds like with the pain, you were really not sleeping initially. Mm-hmm. Um, tell me about kind of the things that you found most helpful in your healing journey in that area. Um, I think that lifestyle changes, the amount of research and information coming out in the last couple of years about sleep and stress has been like huge. I mean, I always knew those were big, mm-hmm. but I don't think I understood how big. Mm-hmm. And also the, the connection between um, like the, the microbiome as well and understanding the gut brain access and healing your gut and all of that kind of thing. 
also, I think I've placed a lot more emphasis on um, keeping my stress level as manageable as I can and putting sleep as a priority and keeping movement as a priority as well. And nature too, like being outside, I find really you're helpful. Like, you're like telling us our book. <laughs> you're, you're just like, you figured out all the same stuff we figured out. Jolaine, how is this, how is this possible? Um, it's possible because it works. And, uh, you know, we know that. But um, talk to me about the things that you do to help you sleep properly. Like what, what did that look like for you? Are there any supplements or routines or anything that help you find good sleep? Uh, you know, that's still an ongoing learning thing. Um, I'm type A, like most people are with autoimmune. Mm-hmm. So I measure the success of a day by productivity. Mm-hmm. So my brain is always going 100 miles an hour. So when I go to bed, I have a really, really hard time shutting that down. So some of the things that I've had to do is, you know, I stop answering my phone and stop answering any sort of messages of any kind as much as I possibly can a few hours before I go to bed. I have like a time I look at the clock and I'm like, okay, I gotta, gotta shut it down, stop working, stop holding your laundry, you know, and just stop and mm-hmm. physically try to slow down. I, you know, some of the supplements that really help me, I find magnesium is really great before I go to bed, um, taking collagen before I go to bed. And more of it is, uh, just, physically trying to like slow it all down because I'm a fast paced moving person. Um, but I'm still struggling with that. I recently just got the aura ring that, um, Sarah was mm-hmm. talking mm-hmm. about. I read about that. Do you like it? Yeah, I do like it. I'm kind of a nerd. I like the data that it's giving me on my sleep and mm-hmm. I wake up and I see one day I've had an hour and a half of deep sleep and the next day it's like a minute. And I'm like, what? Like what mm-hmm. happened? Mm-hmm. You know why? Mm-hmm. Did I, so I find that really interesting, um, but I—that's still an ongoing thing. I, I struggle a lot with getting good quality sleep. I'm a sleepwalker. I sleep talk. Mm. So that's something I'm trying to figure out. Like what's triggering that? Why does it come and go? It was really interesting to see the data in my heart rate mm-hmm. um, going through this death in the family and how my sleep quality changed then. Mm-hmm. Like being able to see that with the ring and like show my husband, like, look, it's like, I'm telling you, it actually makes a difference. Like, wow. like sleep really affects me. And you kind of want the people in your life to be like, yeah, yeah. Like, I hear you. Like, I get it. It's, you know, yeah, because their experience so. of you doesn't really change much unless they unless you speak up and you know, you have something to show them. And I think, yeah. you know, I've had a similar experience with my husband where sometimes it's really hard for me to share with him if something is getting better or worse, or you know, how those those symptoms or those feelings, like you can feel your heart racing, but you might not be like, okay, it's racing now. Okay. 15 minutes yes. later, it's racing really fast now. Like that's not what we do. So that's a really well, interesting mean, that data can kind of help. Well, show I could that. show him like, look, the few days before this event, my resting heart rate at night was at like 53. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, the day we got the bad news, my heart rate was 73. Mm -hmm. And that remains consistent for about a week. Like to be able to see that Mm -hmm. uh, is pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Well, you know, sleep and stress management. I know we taught, we talked about it a lot on the podcast. You know, that's my trouble area too. I suspect that for a lot of people, you know, once they get the dietary changes dialed in, they'll, they'll find Mm -hmm. that that's actually not hard. 
Um, in the long term, once you have this experience of profound healing with food and and you really understand how those triggers affect you, um, it becomes less emotional and more just kind of like your routine. You know, this is, this is how I eat, but this is how I sleep. Isn't that easy, you know, because technology, I have the same problem getting off my phone at the end of the day, Mm -hmm. you know, I have to just be done and do something else. Um, Mm -hmm. because if we rush into bedtime, um, it can be kind of, kind of rough. So, um, thanks for sharing kind of a few of your tips there. Um, we have really burned through our time. I'm trying to, (laughs) no, no, this has been a really fantastic interview. I think people are really going to enjoy it. Um, I'm going to ask you one more, um, one more question about, um, support. So have you had any like standout supporters who've contributed to your healing journey? And can you talk a little bit about, you know, kind of connecting with other people and how that's helped you? I would say that the, see, this is going to make me cry now. Oh no. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. The first person that comes to my mind, um, would be my physiotherapist. Um, she, she was there before I was diagnosed and still is, and probably even more than my own husband has seen me at my most vulnerable, um, the most pain that I've expressed. Mm -hmm. And, um, she's also really wise and she shows empathy, but not pity. Mm -hmm. Um, she listens and but you finish your sentence and like hears that but then also you know she has a great um a great way of giving me perspective so for example say I haven't been able to walk for four months and she's seen me go through that and like help me get to my car after a treatment and and all that stuff but then when I come out the other side She'll say, you know, like, I want you to take a second and see how great you're doing right now and remember where you were before. And next time this comes around, remember, you will get through it. You will get back to this place. It always comes full circle. That's really helped me. Hmm. Um, And absolutely, I'd say she has been a huge support uh, for me in in that. And then also become a great friend. Hmm. and then, of course, my, you know, my family, my sisters and my husband and my mom and have all been really supportive in, in a way that, you know, for instance, I'm invited to a birthday party. And, you know, if I say to them, you know what, I can't sacrifice sleep right now. I really want to be there more than anything in me, but I can't right now. And to have someone say, you know, that's totally okay. Like you, you shouldn't sacrifice your health. I know you're going to suffer for a week. Mm -hmm. If you come here for an hour Mm -hmm. and that means so much to me, whereas, Mm. you know, in the past people are just selfish. They want you to be there for them. They don't really care what it takes for you to get there and how much you pay for it later. And there's sometimes I don't mind paying for it because I'm the experience itself was a memory that I treasure. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to remember that more than I remember the suffering. Mm -hmm. Um, But when you sacrifice to be somewhere and then someone, instead of someone saying, um, thank you so much for coming. I know it took so much for you to be here. I know you're going to pay for it. On the other hand, they'll say, why are you leaving already? So Hmm. that kind of contrast and support. So having, you know, people in my life who get that, I will 
I will tend to spend my time with them more than people who are, you know, why are you leaving already? <laughs> yeah, they just, so, they don't get it. They don't get it. No. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you for sharing that so much, Jolene. Um, yeah. One last thing. Um, do you have any tips or takeaways for anyone who's kind of at the beginning of uh, starting their autoimmune healing journey? Yeah, absolutely. You know, when I first started this and found Sarah's website, um, she has a little slogan on there that says, it's only effort until it's routine. And that has always stuck with me, like so strongly, because it's so true. Because when people start, they're like, I can't give this up. I can't give up dairy. I can't give up bread. And it's overwhelming. It's so huge to try and absorb it all and do it all. And if you can just come back to that, it's effort now, but only until it becomes your routine and it will become your routine and it won't require so much effort and thoughts and planning. Um, that's huge. I think another thing I would really strongly suggest is to get online on our online support communities yes. that are there. Yes. That's so, so huge. And, you know, that the difference between now and six years ago is night and day. So isn't it incredible? Just, it's incredible. Like if you're going to end up with an autoimmune disease, this is the time. Yeah. Because <laughs> like six years ago, 10 years ago, even when 20 years ago, none of this was here. I can't imagine where I would be if I didn't have the online resources. So people like yourself, all of the online bloggers, there's so much information there that's ready and available and free to learn, like go and read and do and, and absorb that and, and be grateful. Like I'm so grateful for you and all the other bloggers who have strongly contributed to my quality of life. So go read the blogs, buy their books, take advantage of the amazing recipes. Like, don't limit yourself and say, I can't eat anything delicious again. There were no cookbooks when I started. Now there's like a whole library of amazing things. Like focus on what you can have, do those, enjoy them, you know, support the bloggers, read the meal guides, take mm. the grocery list. <laughs> like it's, you know, it's, it can be a great adventure if you have the right attitude. I love that. That should be the tagline. Yeah. It can be a great adventure <laughs> if you have the right attitude. So, yeah. so well said. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Jolene. This is a awesome, you, Mickey. awesome interview. I think people are really going to enjoy hearing your story. You know, it's really, uh, you know, there, there are no words for suffering for 22 years like you did. Yeah. And, and, um, you know, one, one little you know, beautiful thing that's come out of that is that, you know, you can get on here and, and share with our audience. <laughs> I know that that's um, a difficult thing to, to share some of these personal details, but um, I hope anyone listening is, uh, you know, really grateful to you for sharing your story today is really, mm -hmm. really great conversation. Um, thank you so much. Thank you, Mickey. Thank you for your podcast and what you do. Like podcasts were my very first Rob Wolf, Chris Kresser, my very first introduction into any of this. So Love it. It, don't ever underestimate how much you're helping people. You too. Back at you.
That's why we're here. <laughs> Thank you. So everyone, um, we'll be back next time with a question and answer episode. You guys take care. And uh, Jolene, wishing you continued wellness um, as you navigate this path. Um, we'll talk to you guys soon. Bye-bye, everyone. Thank you, Mickey. joining us on this episode of the autoimmune wellness podcast we're honored to have you as a listener and we hope that you've gained some useful information you can learn more about the topic we explored today it's covered in detail in our book the autoimmune wellness handbook along with handy self-assessments checklists and other useful resources to put your plan into action pick up a copy today if you enjoyed the podcast please leave us a review in itunes as this helps others find us You can also connect with us through our blog, autoimmune-paleo.com, and with the community by using the hashtag autoimmunewellness.